Good morning. So those are good truths to sing. And uh, reminded the first service of this too. You know, what I want you to remember is as you're singing that, no longer a slave to fear, a child of God, to remember that the reason that you are not a slave to fear if you're in Christ, because being a slave to fear is not actually the point. The point is that you're not a slave to sin and therefore you're not a slave to death. And that's why you don't have to be a slave to fear. Right? The point is not to not be afraid. The point is to not be subject to sin and death. And because you're not, then you don't have to be afraid. In fact, Romans 6 tells us not only are we not slaves to sin and death and therefore not slaves to fear, we are also now in reverse slaves to righteousness. That's what Romans 6 verse 18 tells us. You need to consider yourself, I need to consider myself a slave to righteousness, which is a great way to go through life to view yourself as someone who really has no choice but to do what is right because you have been captured for the sake of righteousness. We're gonna talk about that a little bit today. We're gonna be in Colossians chapter three, uh, but I have a bit of a heavy heart and I I wanted to make sure that I shared it with you all today. Um, Many of you know, if you've been around the church for a number of years, uh, Jeff Twigg, who was our worship pastor a couple of um, seasons ago in the life of the church, and we got word uh, yesterday that Jeff passed away due to a, a coronary incident. And we wanted to, I know many of you were, have been around and have known Jeff, and so we wanted to make sure that we shared that with you. Um, I do hope and pray that in sharing that, you're not hearing that from me for the first time if you were close friends with Jeff, that that word has gotten to you. But we did want to take a moment to acknowledge that Jeff was just such a faithful servant from 94, I think it was, to 2008. He led our church and wrote songs that really became a liturgy for us and songs that we sang together as a church family. And I came after Jeff's time, but I've gotten to know him a bit uh, since coming here and just am very grateful for a man who was faithful and who persevered in serving the Lord and honored the Lord in all that he did and, and sought to bring him glory uh, and never glory for himself. And so we wanted to, to just take a moment as a church and pray for his family if we could. And two, we'll give thanks to the Lord that you know, what he says in Psalm 116 is absolutely true, that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And the reason the Psalms can say that is because the death of the saints mean that they're ushered into the, his presence where he delights to have them, where he's prepared a place for them. And so we get to celebrate that and, and grieve, but grieve as those who have the hope of Jesus. So would you pray with me for the Twig family and for their church? Lord, we pray for the Twigs. And I think before, Lord, I would say anything else, I would say thank you for the faithfulness of your servant, Jeff. Uh, What a demonstration he is to us of what it looks like to be selfless, gracious, kind, filled with the Spirit, always ready to offer hope and to sing the praises of Jesus. We want to be like him. So thank you that when you bring a servant of yours home, Uh, they hear well done, good and faithful servant. We believe Jeff heard that and we delight that it's so. We pray now for his family, Lord, that you would comfort them. Thank you that your word tells us that you are the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. And so we pray as they endure the difficulty of having lost husband, father, friend, that you would minister to them a deep and abiding comfort through your spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd come and do that. We thank you that we have, uh, even those of us who didn't know Jeff, who sit here today, have inherited a, a legacy from him because he's a part of this church family and a part of who we have been shaped to be. And so we thank you for that. And we want to carry that legacy forward of bringing glory to Jesus. Make us faithful in that. 
So thank you. Do come and give comfort. Receive glory now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. And let me encourage you to make it a habit to bring your Bible with you. I know we always put the words on the screen. So much better. Just have the Word of God in your hand, be able to mark in it, make notes to yourself. Uh, and just there's something really rich about keeping God's Word in your hand. If you do not have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Uh, if you're new to church particularly, we, we would just especially delight for you to know that God's Word is powerful. It's unlike any other book that exists in the world, that it is living and active and that it's God-breathed and that he speaks life to us through it and instructs us and teaches us and ministers to us, comforts and encourages us. So we'd love for you to have God's word in your hand. If you don't have a Bible, out those doors in the middle, uh, kind of straight back, if you imagine going through this wall right here, uh, there's a welcome area and we would love to just get a Bible in your hands and give it to you. It's our gift to you. So Colossians chapter three, verse five through 11 got me thinking this week about things that are incompatible. You know what I mean when I say things that are incompatible, right? So like, you know, Red Sox fans and Yankees fans seem incompatible. Yes, uh, Eagles fans and Cowboys fans. But we're learning, aren't we, church family? We're learning to live with one another and love and bear one another's burdens and be gracious until we play each other. Then we put up our dukes again a couple times a year. So, you know, there, so it got me thinking about things that are incompatible. And I started thinking about even uh, that we have a category in the English language for things that are incompatible. We call them oxymorons. You know what that is? Right? So oxymorons, uh, the, it comes from the Greek. And, and oxy means sharp. And moron, not surprisingly, means dull. Uh, so, uh, yes, some of you caught that, right? Uh, so uh, sharp and dull oxymoron is itself an oxymoron. And so I thought about some of the, just some, popular oxymorons or ones that we maybe use now, uh, from time to time. So phrases like, hey, act natural. You realize that's an oxymoron, right? If I tell you to act, but then I tell you to do it to be natural, right? Or how about, hey, let's be alone together. Also an oxymoron. How about that was awfully good. That meal was awfully good as an oxymoron or bittersweet or civil war. That's a big oxymoron, Right? Or one of my favorites as a preacher, I was clearly misunderstood. <laughs> or, hey, I, you know, I, I appreciate the invite to your party. You know what? I'm a definite maybe. <laughs> definite maybe to the party. Or if you've been to a seafood restaurant anytime recently, maybe you ordered the jumbo shrimp. Right, or the one that we are all too often, uh, you know, victim to is that, you know, you know this week I, I had a working vacation. So oxymorons are, you know, they're, they're incompatible. They're terms that are incompatible. And we make meaning of them, of course. We understand what all those things mean as we say them. But what Colossians, what Paul's gonna tell us today in the book of Colossians is really around this idea of things that are incompatible. And what he's gonna say to us is that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, that, that it is incompatible for you as a Christian to live in sin. In fact, the title of the sermon, if you picked up the sermon notes, is The Incompatibility of Sin and the Christian. And that Paul's gonna paint this picture for us and he's gonna say, for you to live in a way that your life is marked by sin is incompatible with who you are. It's not, in fact, compatible for you to say, I am a Christian and also I live and walk in sin as a regular habit and, or, and uh, pattern in my life. He's gonna hit on two particular areas, right? Two particular categories in these verses that he's gonna sort of focus in on, and those areas are sexual sin 
And uh, what I'm going to call sins of violence, and I'll explain why I call them sins of violence. But those are the two categories that he's going to talk to us about today. Now, let me, I want to give a side note here real quick on uh, the difference between moralism and gospel-centered change in a life, gospel-oriented change in a life. And the reason I want to do that is this, is because this text is essentially focusing us on a set of commands. We call them imperatives, right? Things that that Paul is telling us, you need to do this. And so you're going to find right in verse 5 at the very outset of our text, he's going to say, put to death sexual immorality. Put it to death. Give it no oxygen. Cut it off. Rid yourself of it. Alluding very much to the, the power and the temp- of this temptation and the need to be absolutely ruthless and violent and tenacious in our approach to rooting this out of our lives. So here's the danger of that. It's a good command. It's a right command. It's a biblical command. But when you just come and receive commands, right, as if you need to hear this command and then you need to go out and execute it in your own power, that's the very heart of moralism. Now, some of you grew up in church and some of you grew up in churches that were very moralistic. And we desire very much to be a very different kind of church than that. You grew up perhaps in churches or in households that were all about rules and regulations and following them. And if you didn't, you received displeasure. And if you did, then you received pleasure. And so you learned to monitor your behavior very well, but you perhaps got the message that no one was very concerned with what was going on in your heart. They were only concerned with what was going on in your behaviors, yes? That is not the point. It's not the point of the Christian life. It's not the point of following Jesus. It's not the point of church. It's not the point of life together. See, the difference between moralism and the gospel is this. Moralism says, obey a set of rules and do it in your own strength. And the result of moralism always and only is one of two things every time without fail. Moralism will always either result in self-righteousness. If you're pretty good at following the rules, you will become self-righteous and you will condemn those who can't follow the rules as well as you. So if you've been pretty good at guarding yourself from sexual immorality, then you will hear this sermon and you will say, well, look at me, I'm pretty good. And you will feel self-righteous. And those of us who have not been very good at guarding ourselves against sexual immorality will be condemned by you because you're better than us. That's your only option. The second thing that happens if you haven't been very good is that you end up getting crushed by the weight of the command because you know you're not able to follow it. Moralism always leads to those two things because moralism calls you to obey a set of rules in your own power. But the gospel does something very different. The gospel tells you, as we saw last week, change what you worship and you will change your behaviors. The gospel cares very much about your heart. It cares very much about reshaping you from the inside out and saying, I will provide a power for you to enable you to obey my commands. Because the commands are still there, right? It's not as if as a follower of Jesus, I say, oh, I believe the gospel, therefore I can partake of sexual immorality. No. As a follower of Jesus, I say, I'm not gonna be a moralist 
and try and conquer sin in my own strength, but I also understand that I've been given a new strength from which to conquer sin, and now I need to live out that new identity. If you were here last week, we talked about this. I don't do this that much where I say, please go back and listen to last week's sermon, but we're gonna focus mainly on the commands that we're being given here this week, and if we separate those commands from the truth of our new identity in Christ that we talked about last week in verses one to four, then we're gonna be really prone to slip into moralism, and what we want want is not moralism. What we want is gospel activity in our lives. Just brass tacks, every Sunday when you come here, you should know that we're aiming at, we're really aiming to do one thing. At the center of our hearts, every Sunday when we gather, is one thing and only one thing. It's that we would stir up your affection for Jesus. Because the way the gospel changes us is it says, as I stir up my conviction and my love for and my adoration of Jesus, then what happens is everything else changes as a result of that affection growing, of that affection being stirred up. And so what we try not to do is come and say, here's some commands, now obey them. But rather, if there are commands, and we will see commands today, that you will only obey them if you are able to be stirred up in affection for Jesus and love him first and most. And then, and only then, can you change in a way that will not produce self-righteousness but humility. And then and only then can you change in a way that has longevity and sustaining strength and power. It's only when you look to him and see the glory of Jesus through the gospel, unmerited grace, because of his cross, because of his resurrection, it's only when that occurs that real, lasting, sustainable, not rule-oriented change takes place in a life. You with me? You follow? That's what we're after. And I was thinking about this this week as I was praying for you and thinking about this text. I was just thinking, if you divorce you know, Colossians 5 through 11 from Colossians 1 to 4, and you don't understand who you are, your identity, that that verses one through four so clearly paint for us, and you just look at these commands, you're gonna be really prone to approach this from a more, you're gonna walk out of here going, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and I can overcome the sexual immorality that I have faced. And let me just tell you, you will not win that battle. You will not win until you understand that Jesus has to be first in your affections. And that's actually the greatest strategy for overcoming, I'm kind of, I'm getting all the way to the end before I've even gotten there, right? I'm getting ahead of myself. But the greatest strategy for overcoming sexual immorality is to worship Jesus first and most and to fill up every moment of every day as best you can with the worship of him. As you do that, you will find that you will conquer sexual immorality. You will. And it's an important battle, my friends. So we're gonna look at those two categories today, okay? That's my piece, I've said my piece on moralism versus gospel change. I just always want you to see that and hold it clearly in your minds. Now let's look at the text together and then let's look at these two categories. And the question I simply wanna try and answer today is this. Why, why is sexual immorality and why are sins of violence, these two categories that Paul's gonna give us, why are they incompatible with this new identity that we have in Jesus? Why? And if we, as we understand that, I, my hope is that in understanding that, we might go deeper into these truths that would help us then put them to death as we're commanded to do. So look at Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, 
evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Here's that new identity, by the way, right here. You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That's the key phrase, but Christ is all and in all. Now a couple of key points to the text there, right? A couple of key points just to get your eyes in the text and remind ourselves of this. He does touch on this new identity that we have in Christ that we saw so clearly in verse one through four when he was discussing our union with Christ and all the richness of that union uh, with him. One of the things that we saw was that we, we have been given a new identity that when he died, we what, church? We what, church? We died. You didn't think I really wanted you to answer me, did you? I actually did. And when he rose, we, we rose. Yeah, you did better on the second part. Good job. Yeah, when he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. That we are so in union with Christ through faith that that has transpired. That's the reality of who we are, right? Someone who has died and been raised from the dead. It's who we are. And he touches on that here, if you notice, right? He says at the very outset, the first thing he says is put to death what is earthly in you. He's alluding back to verse four where he just said, your true life is hidden with Christ in God in the heavenly places and it will be revealed when he returns. Therefore, because that's who you are truly, someone whose identity is in the heavens with Christ in union with him, put to death what is what? Earthly. In other words, the old you, the the, the you that you are no longer, put that to death. All that's earthly in you, he's gonna give a sexual immorality as a a demonstration of that. But then he goes on further down, he said don't lie to one another, right? Don't, Don't speak in obscene talk to one another. Why? Because, he says, you have put off the old self and put on the new. He's literally, he's using there some terms that are literally the idea is that you would take a set of clothes off, right? That you would take them off. And then next week, what we're going to find is if this week he's telling us put off or, or put to death certain things. In other words, just to be a Christian is incompatible with doing certain things. You can't do them anymore. If you're a Christian, stop doing them. Next week, what he's going to say is, so start and start doing these things. He's going to get, which is good, right? To, to not just be told what to not do but to be also what you should do, what you should grow in. And so next week we're gonna hear put on. And again, the language is very much put on a set of clothes. Right, now we all know, like just to use this metaphor, the idea of, uh, of clothes, like you, you could walk into any local high school and you could identify which group of uh, friends someone belongs to often by what? By how they dress, right? Because clothes become a marker, right? Like you got up this morning, you put on clothes, you chose to wear what you're wearing today. No one said, this looks horrible, I'll put it on. Right, you all decided to put it on because you thought it looked good and some of you were wrong. (laughs) All right, it's a cheap shot, it's a low, low blow, right? But you all put it on because it, it tells me something about you, right? I mean, and and high school is the easiest place to see this, right? Oh, they're a jock, oh, they're a... You know, they're in the band. Oh, they're this, they're that, right? I mean, we identify often by what we put on and by what we don't put on. 
And that's the idea here. He's saying, I want you to take these things off. They are not your clothes anymore. They are no longer the things by which you should be identified. They are no longer the marker of like, you know, you're, you're this or you're that. Now, you're gonna put on these new clothes. You're gonna put on these new clothes. And that's what he's gonna tell us about next week, right? So let's talk about the two categories then. So the first, you'll notice, uh, is sexual immorality. And, and look at what he says. Here's what he's getting at in verse five. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then all these terms have to do with sexuality, but there's one that's a little bit odd, and I bet you'll notice it as we read through it. So sexual immorality, that's kind of your basic terminology, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, the idea there, it has a sexual connotation. It doesn't just mean like ritual uncleanness, uh, in the Jewish mind, it means someone who is unclean because of their sexual uh, practices, because of what they do. So put to death sexual morality, put to death impurity, put to death passion, an evil desire. Now that one's interesting because it's a combination of two Greek words. The word for desire is a completely neutral Greek word. It's the word epithumia. And it just means desire. It could be good, could be bad. Right? There's no, it's, it's not necessarily judging whether the desire is good or bad. But then what Paul does is he connects this other word, kakos, to it. And kakos, it means evil. And so he says, essentially, you have desire that is directed. Desire itself is not bad. You have desire that is directed towards evil things, towards things that are wrong. And therefore, the desires can be called what? Church, you see here, evil desires. You follow me? Right, and he, he's, this is all couched in sort of this idea of sexual immorality. Uh, and then he goes, after he says evil desire, then here's the outlier. He says, and covetousness, which is what? What, do you, what does it say? Which is idolatry. Okay, now how many of you, as you read through that, you realize like, oh, covetousness seems like out of place there. All the other terms are about desire, passion, sexual immorality. They kind of all clearly are in this, in this same area of speech in the same area of thought. And then you get to covetousness and you're thinking, well, when I think of covetousness, I think about like wanting my neighbor's car or want, like I want their house, not my house, right? Y'all you, you know what coveting is, yes? Right, so if you're unfamiliar with coveting, I should say coveting is just an inordinate desire for something which you don't have and usually something somebody else has. The result of coveting is often that you would even seek to harm them so that you could get what they have. Right? And so, you know, the scriptures tell us all, back, all the way back in the Ten Commandments, we're told, don't, don't covet. Don't covet. Uh, in other words, what coveting is, is essentially misdirected desire. It's desire directed at something God hasn't chosen to give me. And so it's misdirected. Right? It's desire, inordinate desire, directed towards the wrong thing. And so here's where the tie-in is, because he says covetousness is idolatry. In other words, idolatry is worshiping something you shouldn't worship. Idolatry is false worship. Instead of worshiping God, you're worshiping something else. And so what Paul is saying is covetousness, misdirected desire, is not just wanting something that you don't have. It's actually leaning into the idea that you are worshiping that thing rather than worshiping God, which is why he calls it idolatry, right? Yes, you with me, church? That's why he calls covetousness idolatry. The connection between covetousness and sexual immorality is that he's essentially painting the picture that sexual immorality is an expression of coveting. If coveting is misdirected desire for something I don't have or uh, that God hasn't given me or that I shouldn't have, right, and therefore it's false worship, he's saying sexual immorality is a version of coveting. 
you are pursuing something, you have a misdirected desire in the same way that coveting is misdirected desire. Sexual immorality is sexual desire directed towards the wrong object. Do you see the connection? Now here's the, here's the most important part. If coveting is idolatry, false worship, and sexual immorality is an expression of coveting, then sexual immorality is also what? Idolatry. It is false worship. So here's the, here's the simple way to say the reason why sexual immorality, the reason why sexual immorality is not compatible with our new identity as Christians is that it is the worship of false things. Maybe I can say it this way. All sexual activity, all of it, is an expression of worship at its core. At its core, all sexual practices are an expression of worship. The only question is whether or not it's an expression of worship of God or whether it's an expression of worship of something else. Now, if you've studied kind of world religions, then you, you probably recognize this. There is really not any group of people, uh, in particular kind of cults that get formed through the years. If you study the history of kind of different cultic practices, one of the things you'll find is that almost in every single one, there is some there is some sexual practice that goes with the practices of the cult. It's a part of their worship practices. Why is that the case? Because sexuality is deeply tied to worship. Because we've been made in God's image. We've been given bodies with which to, to utilize them for his purposes. He's made us sexual beings who experience sexual desire. And he's given us sexual drive. And part of that reality is that it's there because it's something that's meant to be harnessed for the worship of God. So are you with me when I say that sexual immorality is false worship? Are you following that? Okay, that's deeply important because that is essentially what Paul is offering to us as to why it's incompatible. Look, as a, as a follower of Jesus, I have now been, I have now become someone who is designed to worship God and God alone. So when I misuse or misdirect my sexual desire, right, what, what am I doing? I'm worshiping someone else. So it's not compatible with following Jesus. Now, let me reverse that and try and explain it. it that's kind of how the text approaches it, right? The text reveals that to us by making that connection between covetousness and idolatry and sexual morality and bringing all those things together. That's kind of stated in the negative, but let me state it in the positive. And here's the answer I give to every young guy who comes into my office or who we sit down over coffee, and I've had this discussion so many times. Uh, it's the discussion of, you know what, if I know I'm gonna marry her, then there really is no problem with us being sexually active or living together before we're married. Like, really tell me why that's a problem. Like, point to me chapter and verse in the Bible where it says that I shouldn't be doing that because I'm committed to this person. It's not like a one-night stand, and therefore you shouldn't call it sexual immorality. And this is what I try to explain to every single one of those young men as to why that is a problem and why it's actually leading to destruction in their relationship rather than joy and thriving and flourishing. Here's why, okay? Marriage is created by God to be a demonstration of the covenant that Christ has with his church. Have you heard this before? 
Okay, so we're gonna have to follow a couple pieces of logic here, right? So the first piece that we have to understand the reality of is that marriage is God's idea and he designed it to say, I, I wanna bring a man and a woman together in a marriage covenant, that's the key idea of a covenant, so that the covenant that I have through my son with his bride, the church, is on display in the world, right? So Amanda and I, the way that we sacrifice for one another, serve one another, the way that we talk to one another, the way that we live together as husband and wife is meant to reflect something more than just a husband and wife that come together to create a family, right? The end game of my marriage is that Jesus and his covenant with the church would be on display through my marriage. You got it? All right, so if that's true, Right, and I'm not gonna walk you through all the scriptures that speak to that, but just go with me, because it's true, all right? If that's true then, then sexual expression within marriage, right, becomes a way that marriage is able to accomplish its ultimate end. If my marriage is meant to display the covenant between Christ and the church, then sex within my marriage becomes a demonstration of the vulnerability, of like the, the full self-giving of the church to its Lord Christ. I am completely abandoned to you and subject to you, right? And so sexuality is, there's vulnerability, would you agree? Right, it's, it's the most vulnerable act that two people can have with one another. And so the vulnerability, the intimacy, the self-sacrificing love, the joy of union, all of that is expressed through sex in marriage and therefore displays the covenant more fully. In other words, sex helps marriage do its job. You with me? All right, sex helps, some of you are like, no, not at all. (laughs) Sex helps marriage do its job. Now, take sex outside of the covenant of marriage, it can still be intimate. It is certainly still vulnerable. It can still be self-sacrificing, right? It can be all, it can be all the things that I said, but the one thing it cannot be is it cannot be covenantal. Now I know you're like, woohoo, that doesn't help me at all, right? Like in terms of like putting this away, because it's just, this seems like a fact, but I, I want you to get this because you gotta make these connections, okay? If you take sex outside of marriage, if you remove it from the overarching umbrella of a covenant, then what you have done is you have turned sex from an object that enables God to be worshiped because it demonstrates covenant fidelity and you have turned it into an object of false worship. You are worshiping someone other than God through sex every time you have it outside of marriage. That's the point you need to get if you would begin to let that sink deep into your heart and mind, it will be a weapon, it will be a sword that will cut down sexual sexual immorality in your life because you understand that this is not just me satisfying a desire that I feel, feel, it is me worshiping someone other than Jesus. You are participating in nothing less than an act of idolatry. so important for us to understand this. Here's an implication, okay? If you understand that sex outside of marriage is idolatry, sexual immorality is idolatry, if you understand that, you also understand that it will not go away easily. 
Idols like being worshipped. If you're worshiping another person, if you're worshiping yourself. And this is the thing, is I, when I meet with guys and we talk about this, one of the realities, I get the sense that, is that guys ex- expect that it should be easy and when it's not, they give up. It is going to be hard. Expect it to be hard. Why? Because you've been worshiping someone other than the king of kings and lord of lords and that thing likes being worshiped and doesn't want you to stop. And so it will be hard, but you have got to, why do you think at the very beginning of this text, Paul did not choose to say, hey, it would be a good idea if you would stop participating in sexual immorality. He didn't say that. What did he say? Put it to what? Put it to death. That is a violent image. And it's meant to be a violent image. What Paul is saying is give it no oxygen. Cut off every aspect of temptation that you have control over. Take no prisoners. Do not sit idly back and say, you know, I gave into the temptation last time, but I can certainly go there again and this time I'll win. You will not win. You must cut off every avenue, every pathway, every temptation. You must be ruthless with sexual immorality. You must treat it with violence. And do you know why? Because it is treating you violently. It will destroy you and eat you up and lead to a pathway that is completely dissatisfying. It wrecks marriages, it wrecks homes, it wrecks children's lives. There is no shortage of destruction that comes into a life through sexual immorality. Nothing good is produced. It wants to harm you and kill you, and you have to kill it first. And that means giving it no oxygen. You don't need a smartphone if a smartphone is leading you astray. You don't need a computer. Go to the library and check your email. You don't need, you know what, that conversation with that coworker who flirts with you, get another job. Figure out a way to get transferred. Get out, run away. Don't convince yourself that you can handle it. Oh, I know where the line is. No, you don't. The line is behind you. You already crossed it. Take no prisoners when it comes to sexual immorality. You cannot give it a second of a molecule of oxygen to breathe. It must be snuffed out at every turn with great aggression. When you experience the get on the phone and call your friend and say, here's what just happened. I need you to know about it. I need you to pray with me. The greatest weapon, the greatest strategy against all sexual immorality is worship. Because as you fill your heart and mind with worship of the king, you will find that your desire for things that are illicit will fade. It's really hard to look at pornography on your phone in your car when you crank the stereo up with worship music. You laugh, but it is. Fill your heart, fill your mind. When those thoughts come in, Take them captive. Don't wait another second. Don't dwell on the thought and say, huh, I'll, ch- I'll just chase that thought a little bit and allow myself to kind of ponder that scenario or that vision of that person in my mind. I'll just think a little further down that road. No. Stop in the moment. Open God's word and begin to read about the joy of purity in him. 
Begin to understand where life is truly found. Make a commitment to yourself. Make a commitment to those to whom you are accountable. Look, I know how this goes, especially young guys. I know how this goes. Your accountability in this area looks like just telling each other all the times you mess up over and over and over again, perpetually. Stop doing that. Start taking action to say, what are you doing to to ever even prevent being in the scenario where you were allowed to fall? Take the computer out of your room. Get rid of the smartphone. Unsubscribe from the magazine. Don't walk down that aisle at the grocery store. Have somebody else go check out for you if you can't handle that. You have to be ruthless. Do you know that I'm saying this to you in love? Oh, church family. Look, young, this is for everybody. I had someone come up after the first service and just say, hey, look, don't, get, don't let the old people off the hook on this. Okay? It's for all of us. I get it. I get it. And, and this person, I think, very wisely said, in our older days, we just sort of say, look, I've been through a lot, and we excuse this as if it's our Right? So none of us is without excuse. But I do want to say, young men, young women, you are determining a trajectory for your life with the choices that you make right now, today. I know it doesn't feel like you're going to be affected 25 years from now by the choice you're going to go home and make in your dorm room this afternoon. You will be. I'm not saying that to be scary, to scare you. I'm telling you that because some of us have, we're years ahead of you. Would you believe for a minute that we know what we're talking about? Please, please. I've had person after person after person, student after student after student in all my years of ministry. I've had so many conversations and more about this than any other thing. You have to put it to death now. You have to be ruthless now. You will bless your future marriage. You will bless your future children. You will bless and receive power from on high. You are, here's the other thing, you are robbing yourself of power to serve God when you partake of sexual immorality. You are losing authority and voice for the kingdom because you're worshiping someone other than him. How do I worship a false idol and then try and walk out the next day and say, you should worship Jesus and you should be about him and proclaim the goodness of my king when behind closed doors I'm worshiping a false idol? You can't do it. You're robbing yourselves of power and you're robbing yourselves of joy. You're not getting joy. I know it feels like it in the moment, but you're not. You are destroying yourself. So Paul tells us, put to death what is earthly in you. And our chief strategy, church, is worship. Adoration for Jesus. Stir up affection for him at every turn, in every way. You fight the worship of a false idol with the worship of the true king. Sexual immorality is no different. So fill your life, fill your days, fill your moments, fill your morning, fill your evenings with the word of God and the praises of the king 
At every turn, do it. Make your speech, your, your conversations with your friend not about those things that lead you to think about sexual issues. Again, have your conversations with your friend. Be always seasoned with the worship of the king. Talk about his goodness and his glory. Make the center of your relationships everything you do. That's how you, that's how you win. That is how you win. I don't have time to talk about my second one. You'll notice in the text a little further down that it, it talks about anger and wrath and malice and it says put them away, put them away. What you need to understand about this is that as you look at that list, you can look at it later today. I'm gonna call all those sins of violence. Not because they're all sins of physical violence, but when I lie to someone, what am I doing? I'm robbing them of the truth that they need in order to thrive and flourish. That's an act of violence. When I slander someone, I am speaking violence, I'm causing violence against them in my speech by saying something false about them, right? Don't let obscene talk come out of your mouth, it says. That's an act of violence because it degrades the soul of the person listening to me speak in that manner, in that way. And so the word of God says that's not compatible with who you are because you have been someone who's been reclaimed by Christ, and you are no longer one who commits acts of violence to gain power over others, you lay power down. That's why he concludes the whole section there with a statement that says you're no longer slave or free, you're no longer barbarian, Scythian, you're no longer, and he lists all these things that are power categories. They're places from which I derive my identity so that I might have power over someone else. If I'm a Jew, I feel power over the Gentile. If I'm a Gentile, I feel power over the Jew because that's who I am and I'm better than they are. And so their, their attempts, anger, wrath, malice, obscene talk, they are actually not just acts of degrading someone, they are attempts to, to grasp at power and exercise it over someone else. That's what they truly are. And he says, oh no, when you came into Christ, who is all and in all, when you came to him, you became someone who doesn't grasp at power, you lay down power so that others might live in abundance and fullness because what did Christ do? He laid down power. He gave up power so that we might do the same and so that we might live. That's a really quick summary of that last section. I wanted to spend more time on the first one. So we're gonna, we're gonna put sin to death. You know how we do it. We do it through worship. So we're gonna worship now to close our time. And at the end of that, I'll come give a benediction and then we're gonna have people up here for prayer just as, we're, as you're being dismissed. It doesn't have to be about this issue. It can be about anything going on in your life. It could be that you're sick and you need to be prayed over. It could be that you just are experiencing some relational challenges, whatever it is. We're just here to pray with you so that you can respond to God's word and also so that you can you know, walk in the fullness of life in the spirit. So let me pray. And uh, actually, why don't you stand with me? Let's, let's prepare our hearts. So Lord, we wanna close our time together by worshiping you and thank you for your wisdom that you don't just give us a set of rules and then cut us loose to try and figure out how to follow them. You don't. You say, let me uproot the unbelief in your heart and let me do it through the glory of my goodness and free grace given to you. That's how you'll overcome sin. So we wanna worship you as recipients of grace so that sin may be put to death in us. Would you receive these praises, Lord, from a unified church family? Would you receive them? In Jesus' name, amen.